cases that one of the Gospels will have something that the other two do not have, but very similar in their content. And this, is, again, is an event that is recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew chapter 19 and also in Mark chapter 10. And in both of those contexts, Jesus is there teaching about marriage and divorce. And that's a theme that, that has previously been addressed in Luke's Gospel in chapter 16, verse 18. And so Luke removes this from the context of where it acts from its chronological context as recorded in Matthew and Mark. But as we've seen in our study in the Gospel of Luke, that he will often place things where there is a thematic connection. And so we see a theme, I think, here in the context that Luke has chosen to place this. And the theme being that is of one of entry into God's kingdom. Those who are entering into God's kingdom. We find preceding this and following after our text here today, we have the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which we considered last Lord's Day. And there we met with the one, the Pharisee, the religious elite individual, as opposed to the known epitomes of the sinner, gone to the temple to worship. And there... Jesus pronounces, speaking as God, on behalf of God, says this one, speaking of this tax collector, has been justified rather than the other. And then coming up next in this chapter, in Luke chapter 18, which will, Lord willing, we will be considering next Lord's Day, the story of the rich young ruler and a man who comes to Jesus with the question, what must must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to enter into the kingdom of God? And so there is the idea, there is something of a theme here preceding and following our text today of, of entering into God's kingdom. And I think that's the theme that we can focus on for our text here today that Luke has intended for us to grasp. And also consider, too, that in the previous parable, with the parable of the uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. There was the element of surprise, wasn't there? No one in Jesus' listening audience would have expected that story to go where it went. They would not have expected Jesus to say, I tell you, this man, this known sinner, has been justified, has been declared righteous by God, rather than the other man... In fact, we considered that last, last week that most likely most would have been thinking, yes, I know where this story is going. Be more like the Pharisees and don't be like tax collectors. And Jesus turns it completely on its head. So there's the element there of surprise. And I think we also find that with the rich young ruler coming up next week, there's an element of surprise. When Jesus dialogues with the, with the story, a story that we all know very well, dialogues with an individual and you don't, come away with what you might expect and certainly this one didn't he didn't hear the response from jesus that he expected to hear as he encountered so i think as we consider our text here today verses 15 16 and 17 it'll be appropriate to see it in the context of enter the god's kingdom but also with the idea there's likely here an element of surprise the unexpected is presented and it certainly would have been in Jesus' day, as we see by what takes place. Begin reading with me here in Luke chapter 18, verse 15. And they were bringing even their babies to him, so that he would touch them. 
But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Well, there's much in the way of diversity, even among Christians, about the place of children. The understanding of where children are spiritually. We start speaking about the spiritual condition of our children. And I'll admit that there is much that, in talking and reading and listening to different people, different different groups, uh, much, much confusion, much is not clear. And so our goal this morning, as far as this text is concerned, is we want to embrace what is taught by actual instruction and example. I'm not going to give an extensive study this morning on, on the spiritual state of our children. Again, there's a lot of diversity there, and I think we understand just, and largely that we understand our children are in need of the saving grace of God. But our goal here again is, what does this text teach us? What do we see here in Jesus' instruction? And in Jesus' example, to help shed light on this matter of children and the kingdom of God. And so I want to draw to, our, to your attention today three things, as usual. As we think about three truths that we can glean from this, and I hope will encourage us, will direct us as parents, as adults, as teachers, as we have the opportunity to, to see and to influence the next generation for the cause of Christ. And the first thing I think we can see here is there we can be encouraged. We can do all we can to encourage Christian instruction. We need and ought to encourage striction, Christian instruction. Now, we see in our text right away that there are contrary spirits here, contrary attitudes in our text. And sad to say, the contradiction arises between that of Jesus and his disciples that the disciples of Jesus are not on the same page with Jesus. So there's a contradiction here taking place already. And we have in this story that parents have begun to bring their children. Uh, we don't have all the details here. And in fact, it's, it's Luke that tells us that they were bringing even their babies. You get the picture from Mark and from Matthew's account that they were bringing perhaps young children, bringing toddlers, and then it just kind of migrates. The people had migrated. That Luke gives us the expression, they were bringing even their infants, is the word. Their babies. So, don't know what initiated it. Jesus evidently hadn't. We can safely conclude that the disciples hadn't initiated it. But perhaps some in the, within the hearing notice, Jesus thought, I just want Jesus to place His hands on my child, to bless him, pray for him. And so this thing seems to have spread. And so they brought those just so that it says there in our text, verse 15, so that he would touch them, which was a symbolic laying on of hands. There wasn't anything by doing so that was believed to be magical. Some have charged that, that these were parents who had fallen back on superstitions. And so they want Jesus to come touch them in something uh, supernatural will take place merely by Jesus' physical contact with the children. 
But I think it's safe to say if that had been the case, that Jesus would have uttered some word of warning against that. And he doesn't do that. There's nothing here to suggest that that these people were just confused in what they ought to be doing. Jesus offers no rebuke. Jesus says nothing to them about, I know what you think, but don't think that I'll do this. He doesn't correct anything of their thinking. He honors their desires. But as these parents began to come, and Mark gives us the idea, if you look in Mark 10, 10, we're not going to turn there, you get the idea that actually this took place inside of a home. That Jesus was inside of a home teaching. And as He was teaching, these people started bringing their children in. You know, you try to draw these things up as best we can as how it may have taken place, that likely the disciples were maybe by the door. You know, they start seeing these floods of parents bringing their children to Jesus. And you know, the disciples as well, meaning as they are so much of the time, they just look at the situation and say, whoa, we're about to be overwhelmed here. This is the flood. And so this, the disciples rebuke them. They rebuke them. Don't do this. Again, we're not given the details of why they're offering this rebuke. Largely the mentality of their day would have been there are more important things for Jesus to do than to deal with these little children. I think that would have been safely safe to assume. That was the mentality of these disciples. He's got more important things to do. Why are you occupying his time with something like bringing your children so Jesus can bless, that he can touch them? Why are you doing that? So, Jesus responds to that. In fact, Mark's account, Mark chapter 10, verse 16, tells us that Jesus became indignant. He was angry with his disciples for what they are doing. And he, in fact, rebukes his disciples and issues a command to them. Then in verse 15 of our text, it says there that he, he saw the disciples, he began rebuking them. And then in verse 16, Jesus called for them. Called for who? He called for the children. He called for the children there, verse 16. And then Mark, going back and forth, I know Mark 10, verse 16, tells that Jesus, he took them in his arms and he began blessing and laying his hands on them. What a picture of tenderness that we see in Jesus regarding these children that have been brought, it seems, with good intentions by their parents to be blessed, prayed for, perhaps, but at least to be touched, that Jesus would come and and touch them. I think Jesus' example here, this ought to be something that as parents, that we receive some encouragement from when we take initiative regarding our children, that we take initiative of religious and Christian instruction for our children. And now we can look at this story here of Jesus touching these children here, and we don't have to look at this and think that these children were necessarily converted here. There wasn't, there's nothing here to indicate that this was a saving encounter on behalf of these children. But bringing and directing our children to Jesus Christ is always right. And it is always the welcome thing to Him. 
That as Jesus looks out on the landscape, what's going on, He looks to His disciples who are rebuking the parents, and He says to them, don't do that. Let the children come. Do not forbid them. Bring them to Me. You know, occasionally, we'll hear a comment. Someone say, well, I don't want to cram my religion down the throats of my children. I want my children to to make their own choices. You know, if you're a pagan or something like that, that's a good idea. Don't cram it down their throat. That's a good idea. But that's frightfully alarming to me when a Christian says that. You want your children to make their own choices? Just this morning in Sunday school with the children, we were teaching about the, the human nature. We had some pictures. We had a picture of a, of a lion, and the lion had a piece of meat, and the other one was an apple, I think. You know, which the lion going to go to? Well, he's going to go to the meat. We had another picture, and it was a picture of a rabbit, and he had a cabbage head or, or it had a little mouse. What's the rabbit going to go to if he's hungry? And everybody got it right. These kids were smart. Now he's going to go after the lettuce here. And then had a picture of a fish. Here's a picture of a fish, and down below it's got a picture of an earthworm with a hook. Or just a piece of seaweed. What's he going to go for? He's going for the worm. They got it right. I said, it's got a hook. Doesn't matter. Why? Because of this inborn nature that these animals have. And we could predict, and I told them, we know we can predict, and they did. These kids, y'all got bright kids here. Predicted what each of these would go to. There wasn't any disagreement about it. I'm going to pull up a picture of it. Here's a man choosing life or death. What's he going to choose? Life! Then I proceed to explain, no, he's not. <laughs> no, he's not. Because he didn't have the capacity to, nor the desire to. He's always going to choose death. See, there's a way that seems right unto man. There's a way that seems right unto children. There's a way that seems right, but the end thereof is death. You know, we need to understand the implications of what it is to have a sinful human nature that we have a bias, and it's even stronger than just an inclination, we have a heart that embraces, that goes for sin always. We are turned towards sin. We are opposed to God, and we will always naturally choose sin and self. And you want your kids to choose what they want? (laughs) Forget it, buddy. Let your kids make their own choices. And I tell you what they're going to choose. They're going to choose destruction. And I hope by virtue of the fact that you have your children here today, you're indicating you're not going to leave them to themselves. But we see the instructions of the Scripture. And we must consider what the Scripture commands for parents. For parents to do on behalf of their children. Nowhere to go to the Scripture and are you encouraged to say, let your children make their own decisions. You're not encouraged to do that. Turn with me in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You knew I was going there, didn't you? 
Deuteronomy chapter 6. Here is our responsibility toward the next generation, toward our children. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 and 2. This is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it so that you and your son and your grandson and great-grandson, for my dad, might fear the Lord your God to keep all His statutes and His commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Then, in that same chapter, look down in verse 6. These words which I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. This is to be the conversations of our homes toward our children, the things of God. Spiritual truths, things of eternity, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the things that we have been entrusted with and that we are to pass to the next generation. Turn with me to the book of Proverbs. And much of the early chapters of Proverbs is written in the context, or at least the picture there, of a father teaching his son. That's the language that is used there in the first particularly the nine chapters of the book of Proverbs there, of a father instructing his son. Look at, with me there in uh, Proverbs chapter 2. And here's the language here, my son, and it's not necessarily a father speaking to his son, but it is the role of at least a teacher to his pupil. But the picture there of a father and son is at least implied. You can't dismiss it. Chapter 2, uh, chapter two verse pro- book of Proverbs, verse 1. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, look what happens. Verse 5, here's the result. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. This is the goal of Christian education. Not that we have just smart children. The goal of Christian education is always that we are instructing into the ways of God that they might come to know God. That's the goal. And that we come to know God by hearing and understanding the gospel message. So the picture they're given to us in the book of Proverbs, chapter 3 of the book of Proverbs, My son, do not forget my teaching. Now this guy, he's he's committed to letting my kids do their own thing, isn't he? (laughs) My son, do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Look at the result. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. And turn away from evil. And on and on we could go down through 
verse 12, verse 11. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. So there is a Godward training throughout the Old Testament that's expected. It's expected that a father, that a mother, that the parents give Christian, give religious instruction to their family. You don't leave it up to their own thinking. You instruct them there's a way that is right. There is a way that is true. And you instruct them in truth and in righteousness. Then in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, Paul Their rights to fathers. You have the responsibility to bring up your children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Where in the world do do we get in the church anyone who has a mentality of, I'm going to let my children make their own choices. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to do everything I can to instruct my children in righteousness. And the reality is, They're going to make their own choices, but it's going to be informed. And it's going to be, if they choose unbelief, if they choose death, if they choose the destruction of their own soul, it will be against light that is thrust before them day after day. Because I care where my children spend eternity. The greatest longing of our hearts as parents ought to be that our children come to Christ. To know that our children have come and have found reconciliation with God. Reconciled to God. Their sins forgiven through Christ. Our greatest joy to know that our children have come to Christ. Where we can look at the lives of our children and see the fruit of God's work, of God's grace in their heart. We begin seeing things that we've never seen before. Because God is beginning to work in the hearts. That's the greatest joy of God's people as parents. And it ought to be the greatest fear as parents. That our children remain outside Christ. Separated from God. So we ought to and are called to utilize every means that God has given to us. We ought to pray for our children. We do pray for our children. We pray for the conversion of our children. We pray for the conversion of our children at a young age so that they will be spared much of the scars and the hardship of a life marred by sin. And God, if you'd be pleased to save our children at a young age, do it. Utilize the means of prayer on behalf of our children, but also those things which they can see, they can hear by teaching our children, instructing our children. Seeing that they're under sound teaching, using the the Sunday school ministries that you have here, using your times at home and family devotions, whatever you're doing there, but in some way communicating to your children your concern and your desire more than anything else as they come to know Christ. Use the means of teaching to them the Scriptures and the truths of Scripture, modeling before them godliness, modeling before them a life that reflects the grace of God and the power of God. Where it becomes an attractive thing to them. You say, well, I don't know how attractive it would be to my children because I fail so miserably. Listen, tell me what else becomes attractive to your children. That is repentance. 
to go to your children at times and just to say, I was wrong. My children live with no mistaken notion that daddy is perfect. And they know it. And I know they know it. And they know I know it because I've gone to them before and I've asked their forgiveness. I don't want them thinking the Christian life is what daddy makes it out to be. It's much more than that. But, at the same time, to model before our children the grace of God in our hearts. What does it look like? How is it fleshed out? And then when we fail to do so, to be willing to also model another part of the Christian life, and that is repentance, brokenness, humility, wherein we have wronged them. Christian reading. One of the greatest helps in my own personal experience of growing up as a teenager was I was encouraged at one point, and sadly I've moved from that, but I was encouraged at one point in my life, very valuable, was the reading of Christian biographies. I had one man, he said, you should always be reading a Christian biography. And I thought, that's a good piece of advice. And so I started. And I did that for a number of years. And just the encouragement that I found in that Christian reading, seeing how God is moving through flesh and blood people that are just like me. They're not supermen and superwomen. And they're not always missionaries on the other side of the world. They're just ordinary people. And God using and working mildly in their heart. You know, to give that type of instruction to your children. Not say that's all they need to have, but they need a good heavy dose of it. To see what godly men and women look like in various means of service. To do all that we can to develop an interest in spiritual issues. Listen, the reality is, I think we know this, our children cannot be forced into the kingdom of God. <clears throat> if there was a way I could shove them in, boy, I'd do it. <laughs> I would. If it was up to me, if I could repent for them, I'd do it. If I could believe for them, I would do it. If I could grab them by the, by the neck and say, you're coming. <laughs> And get them in. I'd do it. But it doesn't work that way, does it? You cannot force children or anyone else, adult either, into the kingdom of God. But a clear understanding of the gospel. A clear understanding of the gospel is the seedbed. Is the seedbed in which the Spirit of God works to bring men, women, boys and girls into Himself. They need to understand the gospel. Just because they understand it doesn't mean they're converted. But they're not going to be converted without some measure of understanding. Do all that you can to instruct, to train, to explain to your children what the gospel is all about. Why they need a Savior. Part of our work, even Paul speaks of in his letters, he says, I work to persuade men. I persuade men. So if that's my task to everyone else, why should I think it's not my task within the context of my family? I work to persuade. That's our work, if you understand. A role that God's given to us. It's the means, the planting of the seed that God gives to persuade men. So take initiative of Christian instruction, parents. 
praying and trusting that God works in the hearts of your children. Believing that as you plant the seeds of the gospel in the hearts of your children, that God is doing more than you even see. You hope He is, don't you? Boy, I do. (laughs) You know, sometimes I feel like I've failed. And then... Reminded the Lord is working in ways that we just may not and do not see. To trust that he's that he's taking the truth of his gospel and he's applying it to the hearts of your children. Be encouraged in that instruction that your labor is not in vain. Secondly, we need to extend Christ's invitation. Jesus rebuke and instruction to his disciples is twofold. Verse 16. First of all, there's the command here. And the command has a positive and a negative aspect. First of all, it says, permit the children to come to me. And second, do not, the negative side, do not forbid them. And certainly I think it would be appropriate to caution here to, that we need to recognize that our best intentions, as the disciples were, I believe, Our best intentions may be at times in contradiction to God's purposes. To be careful. Then he gives an explanation. An explanation for this command. In the last part, he says, The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The kingdom of God belongs to ones like this. People like this. Now, if God is commending being like children to enter into the kingdom of God, I think it is only consistent with that commendation that He's also saying children are in the kingdom of God. I mean, why become like children if becoming like children doesn't get you in? (laughs) Children can come in to the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is not limited to children, but at the same time, it's not devoid. And we do not need to interpret again the events of of this text here as about children coming to Jesus and being converted. But Jesus seizes this opportunity to give reason to make the application for salvation. Jesus is the one who extends it to this. He's the one that starts talking about the kingdom of God in the context of children coming. So he's the one who opens that floodgate, if you would. He initiates the discussion of his kingdom in this context. And he speaks specifically of the citizens of his kingdom as being such as these. So it is reasonable, I think, a safe conclusion that God is able and God in fact does convert children now I know some of you think well I know that where's that coming from because some of us are aware of we have witnessed dangers and pitfalls that have taken place in the evangelizing of children. And I think some 
alarming things. Some disturbing things have been done in the evangelizing of children. The fact of the matter is that there is within children a normal level of a desire to please. And if you're, as parents, are Christians and you talk about how important the Lord is to you and you talk about how important Jesus Christ is to you and your kids love you and they want to be like mommy and daddy, it's not hard to get your children to say, well, I want to be a Christian too, is it? It's not hard. And so adults can very easily bring a child to, to an intellectual agreement. And then there's been the, what I call the rampant decisional regeneration mentality of our day. In other words, if you make a decision, you have been regenerated. That it's one and the same. Make a decision for Christ. Walk an aisle. If you're at a camp, throw your stick into the fire. And you're converted. Right? Scary, isn't it? Make a decision. And we have removed the spiritual aspect of conversion. That it is a work that is initiated first and foremost by God. Not in the hearts of your child's initiative. But by God initiating a work within them. It's been removed. So the emphasis has become decisional, reality, decisional regeneration. And the reason is simply being because it brings about results. Doesn't it? Man, you can bring them down the aisle. Flock them down the aisle. And sadly, the result has been vast multitudes of people who have made childhood decisions have been persuaded that they are converted. They go out and live like the devil and live for the devil. Nothing of a heart for Christ. Yet they're sure that they are saved because 25 years ago they made a decision. That's, that's frightening. And so some of us have grown up and have witnessed that and we've seen the consequence of that. And a large part of the consequence of that is you have churches full of unconverted people if they're still in church. But you have churches filled with unconverted church people because of methodology that has bypassed the absolute necessity of the work of the Spirit of God to initiate a work in the heart of a person. Now, as troubling as this problem may be, and it is, we don't need to move to the other extreme. And we do that, don't we? This ditch, I'm not in that one, all right, but you'll find me over here in this one. What's the other ditch? The other ditch is that somehow or another we don't think children ever get saved. That we doubt every profession of faith. And some of it comes, we began to insist on or expect a thorough grasp of what I would deem non-saving truths. Well, my kids have to understand this and this and this. And... No, they don't. 
No, the question is not what all do my kids understand. The question is what level of truth is required in the heart and the mind of a child for the Spirit of God to take and to grant repentance and faith? That's the question. You know, so much of our understanding of salvation comes, it comes back to the person. And it needs to be to God. It needs to be to the Holy Spirit. What is the Spirit of God doing in this individual's life? So what's the balance? I think the biblical balance for us. I think the biblical balance is this, that we can rest assured that God does work savingly in the hearts of children, that it is, it is right and it is good to extend Christ's invitation of repenting, of, of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to extend that invitation to our children. To call upon our children to come to faith in Christ, to embrace Him as their Lord, to embrace Him as their all in all. I know they don't understand it all. I know they're not Five pointers. So what? But do they understand that Christ, Christ is the hope of heaven. And to embrace Him. And they're drawn to Him. And to believe that as the gospel goes forth to the hearts of our children, that even at a very young age, they can be converted. So we look for fruit that is consistent with the physical and the mental maturity of our children. Don't expect converted children to act like converted adults. I know some converted adults that act like children. Unconverted children. Don't expect that. But begin to look for spiritual initiative in your children. When they're praying, there's a sense of heartfelt prayers more than just what they have had pumped into them But there are genuine spiritual interests, signs that there's been something of a spiritual awakening in their hearts. That they're aware of their their need of Christ and they're finding their satisfaction in Christ. They're aware of their sin and they're aware they can find forgiveness in Christ. Look for those things. Now, as parents and as a pastor and and remember, for all you people that are a Presbyterian persuasion, you are in a Baptist church here this morning. You know, when should we baptize our children? And again, speaking in a Baptistic tradition. You know, then the the Baptist position has been that we baptize based upon a credible profession of faith. Now we're not infallible in that. And you know, for all the criticism of Baptists against some of the Presbyterian brothers and sisters in the Lord, I think a lot of Baptists are guilty of pedo baptism as well. Because of the decisional regeneration mentality. If these kids and they're three and four and five and make a profession of faith and man, let's get them baptized. Oh yeah, be sure and send that in to the convention headquarters. So as a pastor, and you know, and I'm dealing with some of you and I will at some point with your children and with my own. Now what, when is it appropriate that we baptize our children? And the simple answer to that is, is as best as one can discern. And as best as one can discern, not infallibly, 
as best as one can discern, has God done a work of grace in this heart? And you look beyond the mere words and profession. What's what's being demonstrated? Is there a demonstration of of a heart that's been converted? Even in the hearts of our children. Not infallibly, but at least with a great deal of certainty. We should, I think, baptize them. Now, there are some of them in Baptist churches who say, well, we just make it simple. We don't baptize any children before age 12. I don't agree with that position. I think that you're, you're robbing the opportunity from your children and to set a age. I think we need to look at children differently. Everyone's a unique case. And you know, your situation may be that I have a seven-year-old. I believe it's ready for baptism. I see the fruit of conversion. I have a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 14-year-old that I don't think they're ready yet. It may be the case. But to discern as best as we can. And when, with whatever level of satisfaction, even if it be young children, even if it be young children, to bring them to baptism. Let's impress upon our children the importance of gospel obedience. This is the gospel. Repent. Believe. Repent from your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To do that. To call your children to gospel obedience. To call them to repentance. This is required of you. That's Jesus' invitation. Extend it to your children. Children are welcome. And finally, we need to enter by childlike imitation. Here the adult becomes the learner, doesn't he? We see that the children become the teacher. And here in our text, the three verses, 15, 16, 17, that at two times Jesus places children before us as models of kingdom citizenship. He says, first of all, that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Verse 16. Then he says in verse 17, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter. That's pretty absolute, isn't it? I mean, that's pretty clear. If you don't receive the kingdom of God like a child, you're not coming in. If you're coming in, you're coming in like a child. Period. That's what he says. So what what virtue, what characteristic of children is being advanced here? I think from the context of, of what was read to us earlier by our brother Doug from Matthew 18, it helps us to see Matthew 18, verses 2 through 4, that what Jesus commends there is humility. It says, whoever humbles himself as this child, verse 4, is the greatest in the kingdom of God. We see it also in our context here of Luke 18. What was required? What was, what was demonstrated in the life that we considered last week of the tax collector who came to the temple to pray? What did we see that was commended by Christ? Humility. A man that was simply humbled before God. Empty of 
great performances. No great offerings of having done great things. Nothing to boast in. Simply a willingness to receive freely. To admit their need, their desire outside themselves. And there's the word there. It says in verse 17. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive. Receive. you got to open your hand with nothing in it. No shows. Humility. That's the humility of a child. I don't like to boast in. Children don't have a problem with receiving things, do they? You know, we want to bargain with things. You know, yeah, I appreciate it. Let me give you something back. You can't do that with God. You don't have anything. So we come in humility to God, empty-handed, and receive the kingdom. There's no boasting in receiving, is there? No boasting there. So Jesus here commends the spirit of humility as essential. This child likeness as essential for entry into his kingdom. Refusal to humble oneself, to be as a child before God, is fatal. Eternally fatal. If you would not humble yourself. So, as a consequence, we call children to Christ as they are. We don't say to our children, you need to wait until you have achieved some measure of greatness and then you come to God and offer Him something. You don't do that. In fact, we realize that such successes are more apt to hinder than they are to help. But also to men and women, to adults, the call to humility of a child. No great boast, no good thing. Come with open hands extended as the tax clarity we considered last week. God be merciful to me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. God, do that atoning work on my behalf. Do something with this sin that I cannot do. Help, oh God. So be sure that we have entered the kingdom of God through childlike imitation. So parents, be encouraged in your instruction. Do not lose heart in well-doing. Continue to instruct your children in righteousness. Seize every opportunity that you have. And I said to this heart, I let many opportunities go by. I don't grasp them. Seize those opportunities to instruct your children in righteousness. And to extend the invitation that Christ extends. We're not, we're not being creative here. We're just doing what Jesus is doing. Call your children. Call them to repentance and faith. God does save children. And it is response to the gospel. Call them to gospel obedience. And then finally, make sure you have entered in likewise by imitation of childlikeness. That your hope is not in any boast. Your hope is not in any performance. Your hope is not in anything you have, are, or intend to do. Your hope is in Christ, 
His righteousness, His merits alone. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank You for the grace that You extend to us. And that we are, in one sense, more like children than we would like to admit. Helpless, weak, needy, dependent. And yet in our foolishness, we think the contrary. And I thank You, O Father, that that work of regeneration, that You simply open our eyes to truth. I pray, O Father, for our children here today. Thank you for the, for the vast number of the children that we have in this congregation. And what a gift they are to us. What a treasure. And yet, Lord, we also feel the weight and the responsibility that we, on the one hand, do not want to discourage our children from coming to you in faith. And on the other hand, we do not want presumption and false assurances. So, Lord, we we need your grace. And we ask you to work in the hearts of our young people. Lord, we do ask that you would save those who are young. Save them at a young age, Lord, and just to spare them from a life that is marred. But, Lord, just the joy of a life that is lived for the glory of God and Christ from the childhood. For those here who are older, there are those that have not yet come And saving faith to you, O God, we ask you to draw them. Do that work of grace in their hearts. And Father, if there be anyone here today who has a false assurance, maybe looking back to something they have done, but ultimately not trusting in the merits of Christ, Lord, would you be be gracious today and, and expose that? But in exposing, reveal to them Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.